everybody. Welcome. Uh, this month began on a bit of a sad note for our family. Uh, I had a cousin whose name is uh, Brian, and he was about 10 years older than me, had a couple of, of young daughters, and was an extremely likable person. Uh, he was one of those guys that could just kind of light up a room. Very creative, very funny, very uh, talented person, very uh, friendly. And uh, unfortunately, he had a very serious uh, drug problem. Uh, in fact, it was so serious that in 2007, uh, a, a group of relatives got together and we actually hired a person to help us plan and then uh, carry out an intervention for him. And so all of us uh, separately wrote letters uh, to him, and in the letters we expressed how much we loved him and were committed to him no matter what, but also that we were concerned that his drug problem was destroying him and it was hurting many people in his life, especially his uh, young daughters at the time. And so we all gathered uh, in Columbus, Ohio, where he uh, was from, and uh, we met with him and we pleaded with him to make a change in his life. And he received it very well. Uh, it was a very meaningful event for all of us. And um, things began to change in his life. His life began to stabilize somewhat after that point. However, unfortunately, he still would sometimes slip back into old habits uh, again and, and had done that over the years. But after the, the intervention, one thing that I noticed about Brian was that the spiritual interest that he already had in his life seemed to become uh, intensified more. And, and in particular, Brian became more interested in the Gospels in the Bible, which is the description of the life of Christ. And he was very interested in the person of Christ as well. In, in fact, every time that we would be together for some family event... It was always him who would bring up Christianity or the Gospels or something that he was thinking about related to Christ. And um, I always enjoyed my conversations with him, but I always felt that there was one thing that Brian was missing, one thing that he, he just hadn't quite grasped yet about what Jesus taught and, and about Christianity. And, and that was that salvation is by faith alone. It was really, really hard for Brian to grasp that concept as it, as it was for me at a, at a time and still is even sometimes today. The, the idea is that, that Christianity is not about what we can do or what we should do or what we should try really hard to do for God, but it, it's all about what God has done for us through his son Jesus. That Jesus died for us to forgive us of all the things that we cannot do. And so Christianity is not about us being good enough or sacrificial enough or religious enough for God. It's about Jesus being enough for us and his enoughness being credited to all of our uh, accounts. And so relationship with God is given to a person freely who admits to their sin, repents of their sin, and who rests on Jesus and, and Jesus alone for salvation. What Brian couldn't quite grasp was that salvation is a gift of God's grace that nobody has to earn. And that's what makes it so good. That's what makes it so hard to understand is that it seems like it might just be too good to be true. And it didn't seem to me that Brian was uh, quite there yet. Well, we received a, a call uh, a couple of weeks ago that Brian uh, had died. Uh, he had been found in his apartment, 
And unfortunately, drugs were involved, but we don't think that he overdosed on drugs or that there was anything purposeful that had happened. We think that his heart just uh, had, had given out as he was using uh, drugs. And uh, it was even impacting to one of my cousins and to me that those letters that we had written him 10 years ago were still in, in I think, the top drawer um, on his desk. And so it was a very sad ending to what was just a very heart-wrenching struggle for the family over um, a lot of years. And so our family went down together to the funeral, and um, during that time, just as we were mingling and and interacting with people and and talking, I was introduced to a man who was one of Brian's best friends. Uh, They had become very close in school, and then the friendship had continued, and it turned out that this man was a Christian therapist, and that he was a very strong, very mature, very courageous Christian I mean, just just in many ways, from what I could tell, a, a model of what uh, all of us should be. And, and he said to me, he said, hey, there is something that is so important that everybody knows about Brian that I, I just want to yell to everyone in the room. And what he told me was that a lot had been happening in Brian's life over the last year or so, and that Brian had finally come to terms with his struggle and his own need for a savior. He'd realized that there actually was not anything that he could do to get to God on his own and that he needed to trust Christ. And and this friend of his said, and and that's exactly what he did. He trusted Christ alone for his uh, salvation. And, And in fact, he actually pulled out his phone and he showed me these text conversations that he had had with Brian that that were were just a, a, a picture of exactly that. And so you can imagine that for many of us in in the family, it was uh, just wonderful news. It was incredible news. And, and, you know, it really struck me as I was talking to this guy was, was that you never know what God might be doing behind the scenes in a person's life. You just never know. Uh, the Apostle Paul, one time, we're told in Acts 17, that he stood before a crowd of people who were not believers in Christ, and he said these words, God is not far from each one of us. Isn't that a hopeful, promising thought? That God is not far away from anyone. And my cousin, a man who struggled throughout his life with these terrible, very serious flaws and temptations, he found God's grace probably in the last year of his life. And it reminds me that God is seeking everyone. Those who seem near to him and those who seem very far, and that as long as there is breath in a person's lungs, there is always hope. And I think that that idea, that thought, that theme is the beating heart that lies behind this passage that we're going to look at this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we've been looking at marriage and divorce and sex and singleness. And Paul has been answering a number of different questions that had been written to him by the Corinthians. And in verse 12, what Paul is going to do is he's going to address another uh, question that has been brought to his attention by the people who were a part of this church. And that is the question of, of mixed marriages. 
Now, by mixed marriage, what I mean is a marriage where one partner is a believer, they've come to understand and trust that salvation is through Christ alone, and another uh, partner in the marriage who is not quite there yet. And what we're going to see is that these are some difficult verses, but they're difficult for a good reason. And, and, And Paul's point here is going to be that the spouse who does not believe benefits quite a bit in the marriage from the spouse who does believe and that the marriage provides for them a significant opportunity for the possibility that God will reach them. For uh, Again, God is not far from each one of us and sometimes it's the marriage that, that helps a person to, to realize that. And So we're going to dive into this passage uh, together today and then <clears throat> I, I wanted to give you at the end just kind of a, a living example of this that I think will be really encouraging uh, for all of us. So I want to give you a little bit of background first as we dive into this subject, and that is that it's important to know that the Bible gives very clear instruction that a mixed marriage should not be entered into. Okay, you find it in the Old Testament, you find it again in the New Testament, you find it even, in fact, in this very passage, in verse 39 of this chapter, Paul tells a widow whose husband has died that she's free to get remarried, but she should remarry someone only in the Lord, right? Make sure it's not a mixed marriage. Uh, elsewhere, the Apostle Paul gives a kind of a, uh, an image, an illustration, and he tells singles that they should not become unequally yoked in marriage, Now, this idea of unequally yoked uh, stems from an image of a farmer who's plowing his field. Okay, If he were to get ready to farm his field and he were to harness in the plow two animals that were different, right? Either one is one kind of animal, one is the other, or maybe you have one animal that's very strong and another animal that that isn't or is, is very weak. What would happen is that those two animals would end up moving at different speeds and probably in different directions, and the farmer would not be able to kind of accomplish the direct, uh, the objective, which is to plow the field. And not only that, but these two animals would become very frustrated with each other. There would be conflict. They'd be pulling away in different directions and eventually one animal would have to kind of give in to the other animal just to keep the peace but it it wouldn't be right it would be one animal going against its own desires and in the same way in a marriage when one person is committed to building their life on Christ and the other is not similar problems occur right there's different kinds of strains and struggles that happen But with all of that kind of in the background of this, this passage is talking about not the question of whether or not a person should enter into a mixed marriage, but what they should do if they already find themselves in one. And the Corinthians were thinking that that this might be a good reason for a divorce. They figured that since mixed marriages were spoken against in scripture that those people who were in one ought to get out of it immediately. And what we're going to find here is that Paul's perspective is that that is not the case at all. Now, I think this is really a relative, a relevant topic this morning, uh, especially for many of us. For some of you who are in this room, this may be your situation. And it could come about either because you married a person when you were a younger Christian who was not also a Christian, 
It could be that you married somebody that you thought was a believer, but it turned out not to be. It just kind of became obvious at some point in the marriage that, that maybe they thought that they were one, and, and you thought that they were one, but, but they weren't after all. Or, as was most likely the situation more in the church of Corinth, two people could be married as unbelievers, but one of them may end up trusting Christ, and, and the other one may not have done that yet. And so maybe if that's your situation, you, you possibly attend the church here, but your husband or your wife doesn't. And it's difficult because there's a part of your life, a very important part of your life, that they are not really able to appreciate or understand. And it's very likely that there's a very important part of their life that you're not able to appreciate and understand. And so sometimes there's a a tug of war. Sometimes one party is kind of marginalized. There's a a push and a, a pull. And obviously these things can put a lot of stress on a marriage. And so what Paul is talking about here is, is what should a person do? How should a person handle this? Is divorce the best idea? And how ought we think about these things? So we're just going to dive in and walk straight through this text. I'm going to put a higher emphasis on some parts and lower emphasis on other parts, but we'll uh, take a look at it together this morning. So let's take a look at his words in verse 12 and 13. Paul writes, To the rest I say, I not the Lord. Again, he's, he's talking about something that Jesus has not addressed specifically, as we talked about a few weeks ago, when he says, I not the Lord. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Okay, so Paul's words here are very straightforward. They don't require a lot of explanation. Paul says clearly here that a mixed marriage is not grounds for divorce. And he gives the same command to men, as he does to women. He repeats himself. He says that a believing spouse should not issue a divorce to their unbelieving spouse, but that they should remain committed to the vows of the marriage. Now, why is this? Paul is going to go on and explain himself, at least in part, in the next verse. So let's look at verse 14. He writes, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Okay, that's clear too. I don't think we need to discuss that much. We'll, we'll move on to the next passage, right? That one's a little bit more difficult, right? What does Paul mean by that? How is an unbelieving person made holy by a believing person as a result of the marriage? And what does he mean about children being holy and not unclean? Okay, My answer to that question is, I'm not completely, absolutely, 100% sure that I have my finger on it exactly. Okay, But I think we can get close to his understanding uh, at least. And if you want to read a lot more about that, Go for it. It's a rainy afternoon, and uh, you may want to pull out a good book on this. Well, first of all, as we think about these things, we do know what he can't mean, right? We have to start by realizing that we know what he doesn't mean. It cannot mean that having a Christian in the family makes everyone else a Christian too, right? Just like having a dentist in the family does not make everyone qualified to perform root canals, right? 
Christianity, the Bible is very clear, is not a faith by association, unless that association is Christ, right? So each person must have a relationship with God through their own individual trust in Christ. And so this cannot mean that your husband or your wife or your children are saved through your relationship with God. Okay, we know it can't mean that. So if it doesn't mean that, well, then what does it mean? Well, I think everything hinges here on this word holy. What does it mean that the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife? Well, when God saves a person, when a person trusts Christ, when they become a Christian, when they become a believer, whatever words you want to put to it, when he rescues a person from the consequences of their sin, God teaches that they are made holy. Okay? And so if you are a Christian who is here this morning, God would call you holy. Now that word holy can have different kinds of of meanings, but in this passage this morning, it describes someone who is set apart for God. They've been set apart for God. They've been set apart by God. And what that means is that God now has a relationship with them that he didn't have before. It's a special relationship that is uh, uh, unique to the fact that they have become a believing person. And with that new relationship, the Bible teaches, comes a new identity. And it's the best identity we could ask for. We become children of God. And as God's children, the Bible would teach, God has a special claim on our life. We are set apart. Now, let me try to illustrate this uh, claim a a little bit. Let's say that after this message, I were to walk out in the lobby, and I see a group of four-year-olds kind of standing, you know, over uh, in the corner, and they're all kind of talking together, and they look really angry. And they start looking up at me, and and they're kind of glaring at me. And um, I, you know, obviously what I would do is try to get away from them as quick as possible. So I, I start walking the other direction, and one of them says, hey! We want to talk to you. And I say, you know, all right. I I, I come over and and, and one of them says, did your son Jack have a birthday last year? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, what did you guys do? And I say, well, you know, we had a party. We had some family over. Katie baked a cake. We we bought him some presents. And um, it was a really fun time. Why? And one of them says, well, because Jimmy here. He had a birthday yesterday, and you didn't do anything for him. Would it have killed you to, to I, I don't know, just send a card or something like that? And you didn't bring him any presents this morning, did you? Right? Okay. Now, obviously, that's a kind of an obnoxious illustration. I can tell right now. I'm, I think I might change my tone next service a little bit. Um, but why... Did I treat those kids differently than I treated my kid, right? It's, it's because of a special relationship that I have with my own son. There's a unique claim that I have to my son that I don't have to all the other kids. I like the other kids. I'll wish them a happy birthday. I'll do what I can to, to, to show them those kinds of things, but I don't have the same responsibility. They don't receive from me the same benefits and privileges that my son does because of where our relationship is at. 
And it's really important to understand that believing people have very unique privileges that they receive from God as his children. God loves all people. But Christians, the Bible says, have a special access and friendship with God as their father. And it's a special access and friendship that that we didn't have before. And it teaches us that all of this comes with an incomprehensible number of benefits and privileges. So if you're a believing person in this room this morning, you have all of the benefits of God's fatherly grace in your life. You have access to the deepest parts of his heart of love for you and his patience with you and the wisdom that he wants to provide you, the the help, the strengthening, the forgiveness as you screw up. And, And as you receive all of these things from him, what God wants to do more and more in your life is to mature you and to strengthen you and to help you and guide you so that you more and more might become like him, a a, a gracious, loving, wise, helpful, strong, mature person. And all of these things do not happen by accident. They happen as a result of this new relationship that you have from God, that you are set apart now as his child, that you are holy. And what I think that Paul is is getting at in this passage here is that all of these benefits, this, this incomprehensible amount of help and strengthening and support and grace and love that God adds to our lives, what that begins to do is it begins to overflow into our relationships with our husbands and our wives and our children. As you become a more godly person, as you experience more of everything that God wants to offer you, you bring that into your marriage and you bring that into your parenting, even accidentally. But most especially as you you pray for your unsaved family members, as you try to love them the way that you have been loved by God, as you look for opportunities to speak into their hearts words of truth and life and help, what you become is a conduit of God's love, which is working through you into their lives. And what happens, this is important, is that they receive something from you that they would not receive if you weren't there or if you were not a child of God. And so in that way, your unsaved family members share in and receive and benefit from your holiness. Do you see? They share in your holiness. They're not automatically Christians, but they participate in God's blessing of your life through you to the degree even that Paul says here that as it comes to children, the influence of the believing parent is even greater than the influence of the parent who is not believing. Now, a mixed marriage, I'm sure, can be incredibly discouraging. I'm sure it has seasons where maybe it isn't, but I'm sure it has seasons where it is very difficult and discouraging. And and you may feel like you aren't really making a difference in your spouse's life the way that you would want to. And and it can become discouraging, I'm sure, and and defeating. But what I appreciate about this passage is that it, it tells us that even just by your presence, even just by your status as a child of God, that you cannot help but be a positive influence spiritually on your family. 
And I would imagine that a lot of that is going to be very subtle. A lot of that is probably not going to be even noticeable to you. It will sort of sit in the background. It's not like you can do a It's a Wonderful Life and, and figure out what the family would look like if you were not a believing person who was influencing it. And, and, and I'm sure that other times it may be more visible and, and obvious. But the point is that God is not far away from your family members. He may seem far. The Bible says he's not. And God wants your faith to overflow into their lives. And, and Paul says that this is, this is a good reason to stay married. So, should a believer remain married to an unbeliever, Paul would say yes. Why? Because the unbeliever benefits deeply from the relationship with God, from the status, from the holiness of the believing person. But next, what he's going to do is he's going to add kind of an asterisk to the whole situation. And where we find that is in the first part of verse 15. He says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Okay, so Paul gives some kind of further instructions on this. And again, this part is pretty straightforward too. He says, If... The unbelieving spouse initiates a divorce against the believing spouse, and that might be because they've just come to find their faith to be so annoying or offensive or bothersome to them. They, they just don't feel like they can live with the strain or the struggle anymore, and they feel, the unbelieving party, that they can no longer uh, remain in the marriage. Paul says then, in this particular case, the divorce is allowable. If an unbelieving partner abandons the marriage the believing partner ultimately is not bound to it, okay? Now, then what Paul will do is he'll kind of go back to his main point. So look at the second part of verse 15. Paul writes, God has called you to peace. And then 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So he says, God has called the, un, the, the believing party to peace. The best thing that you can do is to try to maintain the peace of the marriage. And if you can't do that, if the unbelieving party insists on leaving, then you can be at peace with that as well. Excuse me just a second. Anyway, Paul goes on to say that not only... <clears throat> Does a believer's relationship with the Lord have a dramatic influence on the unbeliever? He says, but it's also possible that that might be the case to the degree that the unbelieving partner may come to saving faith in Christ as a result of the marriage. And so what Paul says is, he says, don't move towards dissolving the marriage yourself because you just don't know what might happen to them. You just don't know how God might surprise you. I find that to be a very hopeful passage, but it is important to know that 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 isn't necessarily a guarantee. That's not a promise that if we just hang in there that everything will will work out the way that we hope. And it's it's not a a promise, certainly, that, that it won't come with great pain or that it will be always very clear and uncomplicated. But what I love about this passage is it says that, that your faithfulness has an impact and that that impact is likely much more than you realize 
and recognize, and again, that you never know what might come from it. So as I said in the beginning, I wanted to give a a bit of a living illustration for this. And uh, so I wanted to close out uh, by just inviting Jay and Karen Gordonier to come up, if the two of you would. Appreciate you two being here. (laughs) Good. Okay, let me give this to you, Karen, and let me make sure this is on for you, Jay. Well, maybe you could tell us uh, a little bit about yourselves and where you two were at spiritually when you were married. Uh, we were equally yoked at the time. Both of us were unbelievers. Um, we were married very young. You were both married very young. Yes. Yep. Yes. And what was your uh, what was your spiritual background that you were coming into marriage from? Um, we were both raised in this church, actually, especially Jay more than I. And uh, um, I I always believed in God. It's just that I didn't get it like Brian at the yeah. at the beginning. I didn't understand the gospel. I really didn't know. And How about you, Jay? That was the same way. And I, and I actually, I saw a lot of hypocrisy in the churches that my parents were making me go to. So being made to go to a church is a lot different than going to a church. So, you know, and I saw a lot of hypocrisy, and I, I that's it. Yeah. And, and so, Karen, then a little later on in the marriage, something changed for you. Um, yes, it changed me um, because of my children. Well, because of the Holy Spirit, but... With help from my daughters, Jennifer and Julie, and I was actually 50 years old when I came to the Lord. So just a couple of years ago? Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> and and then I started attending Grace and okay. really really seeking and really hungry for the Lord and wanted to learn and everything. And and I got to say right now that it, at least with Jay who was still an unbeliever, um, for 10 years that I came to Grace and was in small groups. And, and uh, Jay, I was alone. with I mean, I wasn't alone because I was with my brothers and sisters, right? But I was not with Jay. Um, but what was so fortunate, I was so blessed that Jay never gave me a hard time. He never said, are you going to small group again? Are you going to church? You're staying after church. You're doing, you know, never. He was... Very good about that, because that would have been a huge strain. I wouldn't know what to do, you know. Yeah. So. Well, mostly I was just always saying, you're going with those people again? Yeah. You're going to be with those people? Yeah. What's so important about those people? And to English will not be correct here, but now I is one of those. So <laughs> I, I found out. So you, you started talking about it a little bit. Can you describe for both of you, some of the tensions that you felt with that change. Were they obvious? Were they more underground? And what was that like? (laughs) They were quite obvious. (laughs) Um, Of course, then I I presented the gospel to Jay, and um, I talked to him. And and at the time, I think because I was so much older when I um, was saved that I was just on fire. And, and of course, this is true with everybody, though. You just want to save all your loved ones, right? I mean, you want to just spread the uh, word. And so that's what I was doing, a little aggressively maybe. And um, um, it ended up 
just put mildly, in a few confrontations, even when I would bring out the Bible and, and um, you know, yeah, we had fights, okay, <laughs> about it. And then finally, I don't know if you're going to ask this question, but I, through some counseling with Tom Llewellyn, um, he, I asked him what should I do, and he just said you pray about about it, you know, stop because I was I was it was upsetting, and uh, pray about it and try to be an example, and that's what I did, and then it took a while, but here he is. <laughs> well, it, it you know there was a ten year span, but out of that ten years. Um, and the, the women in my life were the most important factors of that, being my daughters and my wife. Uh, but there was also, it, that 10 years, I've met a lot of different people. The Losies have become our best friends. The Millers, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that should be mentioned. And it was, if you came to my baptism, I won't give that version. I'll try and keep it to the cliff notes. But there were so many people, and this church as a body was so important because of, not being a believer and coming to this church, okay? I would come with Karen because I wanted to be with my wife. I would get to the situation that I would be in because of my wife, but I would start enjoying the situation. So I became a seeker. Uh, You know, the Steve Adrianson school of bringing someone into the church took over. Uh, There were a lot of different things that took over. And I didn't didn't really feel conflict or anything. I I felt um, uncomfortable at times, but not conflict. I, I, it was, uh, I think there was a dual respect going on at that time. I don't know if you agree or not, but I, I think we, we respected each other. The girls were ex, very expressional, more than their mother, okay? I think they had more comfort in coming to their dad and saying... They got to go home. <laughs> you know, I never thought of it that way, but that really works. <laughs> But, uh, you know, so it, it, it kept going. Yeah. Did you notice a change in her when she kind of switched gears a bit? Oh, absolutely. Um, like I said, you know, it was, she, was, she was going to those people, but she seemed to be very, very happy with those people. Yeah. Uh, she seemed to be, you know, in a good place with those people. It wasn't like, and we lost a lot of friends during that time, too. I mean, there were a lot of, uh, we'll call them secular friends for now, but there were a lot of those that had to step aside because... It wasn't fitting with her, and I could see the uncomfortableness with her, so I said, yeah, okay, fine. You know, I didn't like him that much anyway, I guess. <laughs> well, let me, let me ask you one last uh, question. What, um, what advice would either of you or both of you give to somebody who may be here this morning who's in the same place that Karen was during the first 10 years of the marriage? What hope would you offer them? You, you gave some advice, which I thought was wonderful. But do you have anything else that you would add to that? Well, I just hope this is encouraging to people. And um, as Paul said in his message, um, don't give up. Don't leave. Don't divorce. Because you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, 10 years is a long time. So, you know, if a couple years go by and, and you're not at peace with it and you feel you want out of the marriage, don't give up, unless it's, well, horrible, I mean, (laughs) but that's my advice, don't give up, I mean, 10 years, and it happened, and we're all happy, and our children are happy, and our grandchildren are happy, and that's the 
That's advice. Our neighbors are happy. Thanks, Karen. Anything to add to that, Jay? Ditto. Ditto. All right. Well, let's pray. Father, we again thank you so much for that great news that you've declared to us in the Bible that your son has won for us, that we can be free from our sin, that our destiny can be secure with you, and that we can have a relationship with you as your children. That's really what this passage is about. That's what we want our lives to be about this morning. And we pray that you would give all of us who are in this room just a real heart and desire for those that we know and are particularly close with who who don't understand that news yet. We don't want to be people who are obnoxious about it. We don't want to be people who are pushy and annoying And yet we do want the overflow of our relationship with you to spill into other people's lives. So help us to do exactly the thing that Karen mentioned. Help us to be more prayerful. Help us to be an example. And help us to look for opportunities to love and serve and share. And we pray that this church would be a place where our relationship, our deepening growth with Christ would be evident and attractive to all. And we pray in Jesus' name.